Welcome to the Gay Buddhist Forum, where teachers from all schools of Buddhism offer their perspectives on the Dharma and its application in modern times, especially for LGBTQI audiences. These talks are offered freely to the world and made possible by appreciative listeners. If you would like to support our efforts to share the Dharma with underserved audiences, please visit gaybuddhist.org. There you can donate, find a list of upcoming speakers, or enjoy many hundreds of these recorded talks dating back to 1996. I won the toss. No, I asked to go first. Uh, <laughs> uh, just because I'm a little nervous this morning. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, yeah, it's... Um, well, I'll talk about that in a minute. But what I wanted to do was, first of all, say how nice it feels, you know, to be up here and you know, really be aware of the Sangha from a completely different perspective. And uh, it's just really nice to, you know, to see the love. Uh, I wanted to talk about my experiences with the five hindrances. I'm in a spiritual support group headed by Dale Borgham, who was here about six months ago to talk. And uh, he also pitched a spiritual support group one of which meets in Oakland from 7 to 9 p.m. So I've been going to that, along with Mitch and Fabio, who isn't here. Come on. John isn't in it, no. He might be in another one. There's more than one. And, uh, but I thought it might be interesting uh, if, uh, you would, I'd invite you to uh, join me in a mini meditation here. 
just going to rattle off the five hindrances and ask if you remember when you were sitting the last half hour um, if any of these arose. The first one is desire. Any sensual desire uh, could be small, like I've got to, I've got to itch, I've got to scratch that itch. Not that it's a bad thing if you do scratch it, but that might be the mini manifestation of sensual desire. Uh, it also includes greed. It also include something like lust. The second, uh, and in a uh, broad sense, grasping is the first one. The second one is, broadly speaking, aversion, manifested in anger, ill will, or hatred. So you might see if any of that came up when you were sitting. The third one is sloth, torpor, and boredom. Very generally speaking, sluggishness of the body and of the mind the mind wandering, and very little effort or no effort attempted to bring it back to the breathing or whatever your meditation focus was. This is, this sloth torpor is one of the most common ones, I think, in uh, my meditation. And the fourth one is restlessness or worry physical restlessness, mind worrying, monkey mind. Is that at all happening at any time during the uh, meditation? And the last one is doubt. What the fuck am I doing sitting here still in a room with 40 other people? This is one of the lamest things I've ever done. Or I'm not getting anything out of this meditation. What, I'm sorry, oh, I'm sorry. What am I getting? I'm not getting anything out of this meditation. Why am I meditating? So those are the five. I'll go back to them. So I just want to tell you that uh, I'm a recovering Catholic. Uh, some of my deepest spiritual values were cultivated when I was a Catholic, and I still hold them. And I know for a lot of people, Catholicism, Christianity, Vatican, Rome, are buzzwords that, that send you up a tree, your up a tree, or maybe we should jump up in a tree. And certainly that happens for me a lot. Um, I had a Catholic family, I had a Catholic uh, grade school, Catholic high school, Catholic college, and actually the first year of graduate school, I got my first degree at St. Louis University, and that was of course Catholic University, but that was when I stopped practicing Catholicism. I was particularly upset with the Catholic Church because I thought they should have had a stronger stance against the Vietnam War. The bishops had written a letter, you know, for peace, but I still think it should have been stronger because I heard the troops, you know, being rah-rahed at the pulpit 
in a way that I didn't agree with. <laughs> and of course, it's always about me. So, uh, I also thought it was kind of funny, the church's attitude towards sex, everything about everything you did in sex except have sexual intercourse with a woman when you were married was a mortal, mortal sin, you would go right to hell. I thought that seemed strange. Now, I didn't have sex with myself due to this repressed Catholic teaching. I didn't have sex with myself till I was 21. And I didn't have sex with anyone else till I was 27. So this, this repression and this core belief that sex was evil was pretty strong. Also, I was picked up by three gays when I was about 15 years old and they scared the shit out of me. So I, I thought, you know, gays were psychopath weirdos who picked up little boys. And that probably helped a lot too. But anyway, there, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh wrote two books, Living Buddha, Living Christ, and Good uh, Going Home, Jesus and Buddha as Brothers. And if any of you get really set up a tree when you hear about Christianity, Catholicism, Jesus, Rome, or Vatican, etc., I invite you to read one of these books. Reading Thich Nhat Hanh is always a joy. You, those of you who've read anything by him know that. And these books are particularly enlightening. I thought it was interesting that Pope Francis recently said, the Lord has redeemed all of us, all of us, with the blood of Christ. All of us, not just Catholics. Everyone. Father, the atheists, even the atheists. Everyone. And this blood makes us children of God of the first class. We are created children in the likeness of God and the blood of Christ has redeemed us all. We all have a duty to do good. And this commandment for everyone to do good, I think, is a beautiful path toward peace. If we each doing our own part, if, each doing, if we each doing our own part, if we do good to others, if we meet there doing good, and we go slowly, gently, little by little, we will make that culture of encounter. We need that so much. We must meet one another doing good. But I don't believe, Father, I am an atheist. But do good. We will meet one another there. A Vatican spokesman quickly intervened. Father Thomas Rosico said, people who know the Catholic Church cannot be saved if they refuse to enter or remain in her. So fuck the Pope. <laughs> Can you imagine some squirrely little priest coming out after the Pope says a beautiful statement like that and going, oh, wrong, 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 got to be a Catholic. Poor Pope. Even the Pope can't speak as Pope anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but this is just to show you that sometimes these two uh, spiritual practices meet and Thich Nhat Hanh shows how they meet on a very deep level uh, I'm in this group by Dale Borgum that he started uh, uh, and several months ago he mentioned the hindrances and I've been meditating a whole lot more 
Uh, I've been dealing with radical, uh, very severe pain. My shoulder became extremely painful. I thought I was going to have to have a, sol- a, sh- a shoulder. I was going to say soldier replacement. A shoulder replacement, and I freaked. I freaked, freaked, freaked. Sat, sat, tried to be calm, couldn't do it, and I'm still recovering from that. I'm still suffering from severe anxiety attacks, and it's a bitch. But um, the pain has subsided. The, the pain eventually went away, and it didn't require surgery. And also, since April 2010, I had an acute sinus infection. infection. After the antibiotic cleared the infection, the acute pain stayed and has stayed ever since. Now, if you've ever had a really bad sinus infection where it felt like somebody punched you in the nose, 24-7. So I'm on pain medication all the time. That really, it sucks. <laughs> it's difficult to work with. <laughs> so I've been meditating more and the hindrances have been arising. So I want to talk about them. I read, an, I found an article on the internet uh, on Tricycle, uh, which is a, it's a magazine and has an online edition. It's a Buddhist magazine. And I, uh, I'll send you some of these things that I read over before I prepared these remarks. The first hindrance, desire. The trick about desire, about wanting things, is that we think that we'll be happy when we get them. And you've heard this a million times, but just review the times in your life you really, thank you, Peter, really thought that was going to be it. You did find the right man. You did. Thank God you got it together to buy that condo you wanted. Anything materialistic. You know, thank God I had that great fuck last night. You know, now I'll be happy for quite a while. <laughs> well, two hours anyway. <laughs> well, half hour anyway. <laughs> uh, of course, this is all talking from personal experiences. I'm not laying anything on anybody here. So, desire uh, is a biggie. And I would say um, the one who wrote about this in the article was Jerry Larkin. And I just wrote down a remark. She said, the few times when the first thing she tried hasn't worked, she says, I just go to gratitude and meta meta, uh, practice, and it has made me sane again. And uh, that word sane made me remember that I've been doing 12 step for about 20 years and uh, the third step is came to believe a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity it's actually in the second per- first person plural it's restore us to sanity and sanity is a Latin word that means health that's all the second hindrance is angry, angry. anger, hatred and ill will When I get the most angry, the most furious, I get very angry at God. And this is God as I imagined him when I was a Catholic. And it's funny because the God as I was taught when I was a Catholic was was a very benevolent God. You know, uh, 
I never really identified with the person of Jesus too much because the pictures of him always looked like he was on Valium. <laughs> he was. He was. That was a, it was a quaalude, actually. Right, right, right. Well, he calmed himself to get all that dopamine or whatever Valium, Valium puts in your brain. Um, but, you know, I never saw him ribbing one of his apostles with a yuck yuck. And um, uh, his talks... His talks really lacked any any humor, as some of the Buddhist stories they they, they have some humor in them. <laughs> Thank Buddha. So I get very angry at God. This is not a this isn't the biggest one for me, but it's very big. It's very big. And uh, the one who talked about this in the article was uh, uh, Lama Paulden, who's a Marine psychotherapist and Buddhist teacher. And um, she wrote, well, we, we should think about what the person on the other side is thinking when we're getting angry or how, you know, what their state of mind might be. And when I get mad at God, I, I really don't do this. I'm just saying it because I read it. Um, what I might do is the God of my understanding would be saying, Paul, I'm so sorry you're upset. You know, I, want, I wish I was there to take you in my arms and go with you. <clears throat> but it's like a kid, an infant kid getting mad at their parent. That's how I am. And it's, it's, if any of you have gotten that, had that kind of rage, it's pretty intense. You know, especially when I feel victim, that I've been given challenges that I just feel crushed by. Uh, getting rid of past resentments, anger, is a huge part of the 12 step program. If you find yourself obsessing about that person who you hated, um, you know, 50 years ago, you might try to do some work getting rid of those resentments because anger just isn't in the present or someone in the last week or day. It goes way back. The third one, sloth, torpor, and boredom. This is the biggest one for me. Uh, in 1994, I had to stop working in uh, educational the uh, television office at Berkeley since I was about six years old I had worked in theater and I had to quit and I stopped I got profoundly bored with life I got profoundly depressed and to this day I'm still working on that I just haven't been able to get rid of that slag I've done I started another career kind of fizzled out because I wasn't good in marketing and I've stepped up my volunteer work but uh, sloth and torpor in your sitting practice is, is usually fairly correctable. Oh, wake up a little bit. You know, oh, gently bring my mind, as James Braz, my first uh, meditation teacher, said, bring the mind gently back onto the paper like a little puppy. <laughs> and that's correcting torpor, sluggishness of the mind. But it can be very profound in your life, this sloth, torpor, being bored with life and doing a lot of things to having back off from your commitment to life, which is what I really have been struggling for a long time with. What happens is, and Ajahn Amaro, who used to be around here, he was a monk who was very, very Wise, I think he was maybe, I don't know if he was here once, but he's very wise, and I had a crush on him. 
And, uh, he went back to be the head of the abbey in England, where he came from. Uh, but he said in regards to this, uh, look at the emptiness when you do the exhalation and before you inhale, there's one or two seconds where nothing happens. And he invites us, as a lot of teachers do, Dale Borkham has invited us to do this, to look in that emptiness. We can transform our fear of this emptiness. Boredom and loneliness depend on investing in the sense of self. And ironically, the harder we try to solidify our image of me through activity, the more we create the conditions for boredom to arise. If the sense of self is clearly understood as empty, solitude becomes a cherished companion. Try quieting the mind and then dropping the question, who am I, into that little silence after your exhalation, before the inhalation. It took me years to find that space. <coughs> Ask, who am I into it? A gap opens after the question and before the thinking self, and before the thinking self-creating habit can produce a verbal answer. Explore that gap and how it changes your experience of selfhood. I only have one or two more minutes, so let me think for a second about what I want to do. The fourth hindrance is restlessness and worry. I used to worry more than I did, and I, worry, I realized how totally pointless worrying was. I figured out for me it was an attempt to somehow magically uh, affect the future. And when I realized that was really a mind fuck, uh, when I finally realized that, I cut way back on worrying. <laughs> <laughs> so now I just get terrified once in a while. <laughs> I'm going to go to doubt because torpor and boredom and doubt are the biggest ones for me. Doubt is when I drop, stop doing my practice. It happens either because I'm not getting some results that I have established that should be a result of my meditation and reading. Uh, that happens a lot. And then another time, things will be going okay and it's going, oh, I don't need to meditate, nothing up for me. You know, and I realized that at those times, if I increase the service I do for people, you know, uh, put out love for people, I can really increase the joy in my life. I don't have to remain at kind of this little low, low joy uh, threshold, that I can really increase it. But doubt plagues me. So the five hindrances, they're all good. Uh, but the, the slow torpor, boredom, and doubt really afflict me. And these hindrances are conditions that arise. They're not sins, even though they share the word of some, like doubt is a sin and anger is a sin. These aren't sin. These are conditions that arise, like a strong wind that keeps your kayak from going straight from point A to B. It is a hindrance that prevents you from going there. You know, or hot weather is a hindrance to your feeling really great. I mean, really hot weather. They're hindrances that you have to deal with and that they are out there in nature. And the five hindrances that the Buddhists talk about are internal hindrances that are natural. You cannot do anything to stop them. 
you can only be with it. So, thanks very much for this. Uh, I'm Philip, and I, I brought my own hissing section. Uh, could you guys practice something? I'm a ragtag Buddhist, I think. I call myself Buddhist light. Um, I've had very little background in Buddhism uh, other than coming here. Uh, I don't meditate other than here. I don't have an altar. I don't burn incense. I don't chant. Um, but I keep coming back. I grew up Catholic as well, but I didn't get the, the full dose as you did. <laughs> I, uh, and I was completely uh, uh, clueless about everything and just bought the whole Catholic package. And I entered college and started, my world started to expand and I started to meet people who actually thought. and. The cracks in Catholicism appeared, and eventually I uh, stopped being Catholic, but I remained clueless. That I seem to have. <laughs> and so, in, in the in the process of uh, becoming uncatholic, uh, I became very anti-religious, and I became anti-spiritual. I didn't realize that there was a difference between the two, and that being religious had nothing to do with spirituality and I had never felt spiritual as a Catholic. I didn't know what that meant. So for decades, uh, I paid no attention to any path or any philosophy. I rejected everything just out of hand without exploring any of it. I was a bit uh, rudderless, really, in the world. I was skeptical of everything, but I kept missing the bigger picture. Uh, I let my cynicism um, prevent me from exploring anything else. One of the things I didn't realize was that uh, I did have spirituality, and it was in my work, especially in the um, physical work. I, for a long, long time, I did photography. Uh, had my own laboratory, did black and white work, um, didn't realize how I got into a space that was unlike any other space I occupied in the rest of my life and I was in the dark room. <coughs> and then I, that went away and got, and I embraced designing and making furniture and that was again a spiritual thing and I didn't realize that either but I would just get so absorbed in what I was doing. And after I made something, it just went out into the world. There are, I don't know, 30 or 40 things I've made who, I don't even know where they're at. They just, they're out there, unsigned. The anonymous craftsman, I call that. But I continue to be clueless. That seems to be the, the motif of my life. But along the way, I started developing this um, um, uh, appreciation for um, 
I call legacies, people's personal legacies uh, in the things that I acquired in my life or the things that I appreciated without knowing who made them, where they came from. Uh, this uh, I have this um, reverence for the anonymous craftsman. The, uh, when I when something comes into my life, you know I covet it because it's so beautiful, and I think oh, this is somebody's legacy. I don't know who that person is, but they probably felt just like I do when they made that, as I do when I make something, and. So I have this connection to things in that way, uh, buildings or things that I own. About 25 or 30 years ago, I read this little one-page essay on uh, making things and putting them out in the world in that it's an act of bravery to do that because it's like putting yourself out there and to be judged and to be used and discarded. And so that, that had a really profound effect on me, the sense of, again, it's anonymity, but the spiritual anonymity, this uh, feeling. But there was no single event in my life that broke through that cluelessness. I just continued to be really unaware. I just, you know, like in a coma. I used to say I was in a coma for 60 years, and I kind of woke up. And I, oh, my God. <laughs> uh, and I think some of that was uh, I, I ran on fear. I was always afraid of uh, the unknown or what might happen next. And I think some of that was growing up. Um, I grew up in a family where we had no sense of self. We were uh, never taught to be adults, never taught that we had a place in the world, that we should have any respect from anybody. Everybody knew better than us. And I carried that around for a really long, long time. And I realized how destructive that is because you become self-absorbed. I mean, it's the only only place you go is the self-absorbed sense of fear, and uh, it's really selfish. Also, it's um, uh, it, there's no compassion in that. And I think the fear was that I didn't have any strength inside of me to deal with what would come come up, what would come along. Uh, and I think the first really um, scary event was my, my sister um, had acute diabetes, and it was just uncontrollable. And she lives here in San Francisco, not far from me. And so more and more of my time uh, was devoted to helping her, physically helping her. And, um, and I did that. I did that really well, but I wasn't there for her emotionally, and, 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 and there was no compassion. I was so afraid. The disease kind of scared the shit out of me. And, um, uh, you know, I have regrets about that, that, uh, you know, it wasn't enough to do her laundry or to take care of things. Uh, it was, uh, I just wasn't there. And I'm not sure why. I think I was just terrified. 
and eventually she got more ill and she had a stroke and she went into a coma and she was that way for six months until she died. <clears throat> then my father, my parents lived here for, for many years, uh, not too far from here. They moved here to be close to me and my sister and uh, I did not look forward to that move but I <coughs> thought, okay, they're moving here and I found them an apartment and I furnished it and uh, you know it's just I decided this was a, a test um, I never liked my father I just um, actively did not like my father and came to realize he was uh, a mess he was this acute uh, acutely depressed chronically depressed person who never had a good laugh, who just suffered incredible emotional pain his whole life. And the destruction it wrought on the family was, it was so apparent. Um, but then I dealt with his illness and his depression and having to take them to the locked psychiatric ward at uh, Davies Hospital because he was completely out of his mind at some point until we got him medicated. Um, so each of these steps was kind of like realizing, oh, I can do this. Oh, I, uh, it's okay. I can handle this. There's nothing, nothing bad is going to happen if I do this and that I have the strength to do this. Um, then I got diagnosed with HIV about eight years ago and um, had a nice support network around me of people of like, like kind. Um, but again, I was still kind of clueless, and uh, um, about a year after that, I think it was just the buildup of all of this fear and all of this anxiety. Um, one day I couldn't get out of the house. I, I remember trying. I left the house, and I came back, and I took to my chamber, my, <laughs> my I swooned a lot <laughs> for a month. I couldn't get out of bed, I, I didn't hardly ate anything, I hardly talked to anyone. Um, I thought, well, this is it. And my mother, my father had died at this point, and my mother and I had a pretty good relationship. And she calls up one day and says, I think I'm having a stroke at like six in the morning. And I'm going, <gasps> And somehow I pulled it together and got out of the house and drove over there and she was adamant about not going to the hospital and I talked her into it. I called 911 and, and then when those hunky medics showed up, I pushed her out of the way and I said, take me. <laughs> I, need, I need, oh, these four hunky, they, you know, they picked them for sweetness and hunkiness. I call regularly now 911. <laughs> oh, I got better. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm okay. <laughs> um, but and then I didn't realize that uh, this was a tipping point. Uh, having to deal with her. Um, she was in the hospital for several weeks and then she was in rehab for four weeks. But she was 90 years old. It wasn't like she was going to get better and she had lost her right arm and right leg and every, you know, all of the right side. And so the only, uh, uh, only thing I could do is I took her into my house, into my flat, and she lived there about two and a half years. And 
it was during that time that I realized, oh, you know, this isn't painful. It's a chore, maybe, and but it's not painful. And um, you do what you need to do. And, you know, wiped her poopy butt every day and scrubbed her dentures and fed her and uh, uh, read the New York Times to her every night. And uh, I tried to get her stoned. She, she didn't go there. <laughs> Watch Six Feet Under the whole five years. <laughs> Get a hint. <laughs> and so we developed this pretty cool relationship. You know, she was cogent. She was funny. Uh, she was engaged. Um, I remember one day, the, the, there are two men who live up, up above me, and she really liked them a lot. She really liked men. She really liked gay men, especially. She was just the, the oldest fag hag in San Francisco. <laughs> and one of them came down to visit her and sat on her bed because she was in a wheelchair, and then he left, and then Wolf came down, and she chatted with him, and then I said, you know, you've had a lot of men in your bed tonight. She said, yeah, and it's still young. <laughs> so she had a very good sense of humor about all of that. I think what happened, well, uh, eventually I, I did have to put her into a nursing home. We couldn't care for her anymore, but she died within two months of that. And, and during that time, I, I realized how uh, I could do all of this. And this equanimity took over. And this, uh, I lost my fear, and I lost my fear about being positive, and um, it. Um, I realized at some point, uh, you can't live your life thinking that you'll start to live your life once you get through these things. And that is your life. There's no other. Beyond this is it, and so you either get the um, the satisfaction of dealing with those things, or, or you're forever anxious. You're forever waiting for your life to start, and um, I think and and I, and I think it's washed over everything. Uh, I, I rarely feel anxious. I mean, really really don't feel anxious hardly ever um, and when I do I can really focus on it and realize oh you know, there's really nothing to be anxious about here uh, I, it's washed into my work into my profession uh, I never get anxious about deadlines or anything I'm expected to do it just happens I don't even keep a schedule I don't even have a workday thing just kind of flows um, my design work is much more on the target I don't fumble around I don't have this ambivalence um, I, I just I'm very very grateful I've come to really be grateful and it's, you know whether it's luck or whatever it is I just have this profound gratitude that uh, I do have the life that I have now, um, and it gets tested. I had a housemate who Jim met, who um, he was there off and on for about two years, a son of uh, college friends, and he just had so much baggage, has so much baggage, and 
alcoholic. And at one point I realized why my liquor was always missing. I was just like, well, clueless. (laughs) (laughs) Realizing he was drinking it all the time and not replacing it. And instead of kicking him out or anything, I just sat down with him and said, you really need to change his behavior. And I said, you're going to go to AA and you're going to stand up and you're going to say, hi, my name is Eric and I'm an alcoholic. And he did. Uh, And then at another point in time, he got so desperate and so depressed, he was stealing money out of my uh, my uh, ashtray, my car, my toll money. And I kept wondering why there was never any toll money. Again, I finally figured it out. And I confronted him about that. Instead of being angry, I just said, you know, what, what's going on here? And I think it was coming here. I think it was just like this... Um, being able to deal with nearly anything that comes along in a, an appropriate way, perhaps, um, you know, the, the right way. Um, and I started coming here, I think Jim was the provocateur, as always, who forced me to come here, and I thank him for that. Um, so that's my story. Thank you both so much for sharing your wisdom passion and your wonderful senses of humor. Uh, we still have uh, a good five to seven minutes. You guys up for feedback or questions? Either of you use the uh, bucket list, the things to do before you, you die? I'm just curious. I haven't. Um, Hang on you. A friend of mine at work had and he showed it to me, and one of them was hire an escort, so I made that arrangement for him. <laughs> <laughs> of course, I tried it out first. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It went very well. <laughs> have, have you? Yes. No, I haven't made a bucket list. No. no. I think I was always afraid. Just afraid of everything, really. My father was afraid of life. I mean, everything made him anxious and depressed. <coughs> and I grew up that way as well. So what's, what would change? What would allow you to not have uh, Getting some confidence that I could handle most anything and that it was rewarding, actually, rather than running away from it. It was rewarding to handle stuff. Being compassionate helped in realizing I'm not alone here and stop being so self-absorbed. And As somebody I worked with once said, you have to walk in the other person's shoes. And so I try to do that more. I thought it was really in there. You said that you walk, let your life wash over you also. That, that seemed to be part of it. Uh, letting your life touch you uh, gave you ultimately some confidence. Thank you both for really interesting talk. I think a lot. 
Well, Philip, there's something you said that uh, kind of in passing, but uh, that rang a bell with me. Uh, uh, in my case, one, one area where I find myself losing myself and getting into and thoroughly enjoying it's in my small garden. I have about, I like to look at the plants, uh, occasionally look at some of the spiders that are there, <laughs> admire them, even though I'm not particularly fond of them. Uh, but uh, there's one, a uh, few objects that are left over from long ago, a partner that uh, had the past debates, uh, and uh, Pooh's previous partner uh, had at one point or another gotten some leftover stuff from Victorians that had been demolished. So there's a uh, an architectural feature about this hobby, I think it's called volutes or something, uh -huh. that I have uh, in the garden. And uh, I often look at those and, and imagine what kind of history that object had. Clearly came from this area, uh, the person that, uh, or people that put it together, the building that it, uh, that it served at some point, and, and how it passed from hand to hand is now sitting in my garden, probably on its last absolute leg, because it's falling apart as wood. And uh, I get a lot of, you know, it, it, it draws me in. It's, mm -hmm. it's a really an interesting connection of like, whatever I do, whatever, all these things are the result of people's uh, work uh, that happen over time. Some of those are people that were really into it. So. Yes, um, one of the things that I did for a long time, uh, I collected, um, Appliances that had a particular fondness. <laughs> you not Really, I had an entire room lined with walls. I had about maybe 400. It's like toasters, percolators, juicers, anything. <laughs> everywhere. And they all were in mint condition, and I found them. Garage sales, flea markets, I would clean them and look them up and find out who cleaned the company. And it was my way of stewarding these things that otherwise might be lost or thrown away. And then uh, I reached a point where I decided I had stewarded them, most of them enough, and I gave them to other people like at work. And um, it's passing on these little mini legacies. I mean, somebody had to design that thing, and somebody had to make it. Even though they made thousands of them, it still was imbued. And, I, and I, I, it gives me great pleasure, this connectivity to the past through physical objects. I like that. Yeah, thank you both. This is exactly why we have Dharma duos. You know, that, you know when uh, people tell the truth, it's, real, it's very moving. Um, thank you both. And Paul, the fact that you have chronic sinus infection pain, just, um, I salute you. I had a sinus headache once, and I almost killed myself. I couldn't believe um, that it was so... Uh, Invasive. How? What are your tricks in dealing with that type of pain? Are you uh, oxycodone and <laughs> 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 okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> and acupuncture and um, uh, I take uh, some herbal things, but uh, the pain became so acute I had to start taking meds. Um, but uh, also, uh, you become used to it, and so it isn't as uh, quite as bothersome as it was in the onset and before 
anything could be done about it. Uh, so in that way, I guess on some level I've accepted it uh, as other people with, you see, who have more noticeable disabilities uh, become adjusted to them. Uh, so I have to. But I'm glad someone can share the pain of these things. <laughs> I was wondering, either of you, um, what are the most what is the most difficult thing that you deal with now in your life? Well, for me, it's breaking through, like Philip said, the self-absorption of the things I have to deal with, and. Uh, uh, I belong to this group of seniors that helps other seniors. Uh, you know that really helps me get out of myself, helping, uh, helping other people, and uh, you know, s stepping up my spiritual practice. Uh, that's what I do. Do you have any? I do have a little form of meditation, I guess. I volunteer at the SBCA, where I uh, I make kitty porn. <laughs> <laughs> but they're all 18 weeks old. <laughs> and I've been going about twice a week for uh, three or four months now, and I realized how uh, I get completely focused on it. It is almost a form of meditation. I'm not thinking about anything else. Just dealing with them, you know. My the only purpose for volunteers is to socialize the cats so they become more adoptable. And so, for me, that's kind of this wonderful place to be. Two or three hours. Is there a name for the practice where you're breathing and asking the question, "Who am I"? Is there a name for that? Uh, I don't know, but I'll send out um, websites of uh, uh, including the quote that I had about looking into uh, this. If someone out here uh, knows of someone who's written about this and can uh, help this man with a referral, that would be good. There's a guy named Ramana Maharishi. And that's his, his primary practice. You just keep asking over and over and over again, who am I? And if you come up with an answer, that's not the right answer. <laughs> <laughs> but he, he's a profound guy. He's all over the web, and I'd be glad to give you yeah. information yeah. about him. <clears throat> yes, exactly. Sounds like a blast. It's really good stuff. Also, Russian is in um, his books, uh, The Book of the Secrets, is one of his techniques is to focus at either end of the breath, to just sort of dwell there for a moment before the breath uh, begins again or, or starts again. There's a, a special um, quality of spacious emptiness there. I was looking at that book, oh, The Path of Insight Meditation. The book is a more or less of an introduction to uh, meditation by Jack Cornfield and Joseph Goldstein. Somewhere in there, in talking about the hindrances, 
there's an explanation of looking into this void. You're asking about the question, who am I, right? Well, I think it's an interesting thing to place that within the reading, so. Uh, okay. Okay, that brings us to the end here. Uh, announcements? Yes, uh, the GBF retreat will be happening two weeks from this weekend, and we still have some places open. If you're interested, see me uh, after the session. Uh, as of uh, yesterday, uh, there were 12 people who indicated they wanted to go to the uh, get the group tickets for Hush on Sunday at the matinee on the 29th. And um, so I'll be the guy who does all the group sales is not going to be in until Tuesday, Wednesday. So I'll settle all that then. But when we, after the, uh, when we go outside, if there's anybody else who would be interested, come and talk to me. Or if anybody else has questions about any of it, uh, come talk to me. Yes, next week, um, Mark Leno was scheduled to speak, but he um, had a conflict and was going to have to leave early. So um, instead, we're going to have John Draka speak. Um, I'm your host today. Stay and enjoy the fellowship of the Sangha. Um, we have tea and um, uh, hot water for tea and um, uh, refreshments. If you have hot tea, please um, wash a cup with lots of free water. Uh, I'll be coming around with the uh, dawn bowl. Um, and uh, anything you care to contribute would be greatly appreciated by the There's a sign-up sheet on the um, credenza if you want to be on our mailing list. Around 12.30, some people gather at the front door and go out to lunch. It's open to you to join in. So you just show up at the front door at 12.30. If anyone's driving back to the East Bay, I wouldn't mind a ride. I live near 51st and Broadway. Okay. Um, I'd like to re-welcome our newcomers, and let's uh, form a circle and have our Thank you for your practice. By the power and, and truth of this practice, may all beings have happiness and the causes of happiness. May all be free from sorrow and the causes of sorrow. May all never be separated from the sacred happiness which is without sorrow and may all live in equanimity without too much attachment or too much aversion, believing in equality of all that lives. Thank you for listening to the Gay Buddhist Forum. If you would like to hear several new talks per month and be notified of upcoming speakers so you can participate live, please subscribe to this podcast, like us on Facebook, and join our mailing list by visiting gaybuddhist.org.